14, which is a very demanding chapter. I often say to people, if you want to understand something of the God of the Bible, not that you can ever comprehend God, but if you want to understand something about him, then read the book of Isaiah. Now, it's a challenging read, but with a, a good modern translation, it's uh, very attainable, and you will understand and learn about, a lot about God, his nature, his being, his works. If you want to understand the gospel, then read Romans. Read it carefully from beginning to end. It is perhaps the closest thing we have to the, a full exposition of what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, actually is. And, of course, it was addressed to the church in Rome, right at the heart of the empire. So it was a very significant place, and it's a very significant letter. Now, the other thing is a slight problem in that Romans 15 is a long chapter. Um, and obviously, we're, 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 we're limited for time, and we're only going to focus on... But I, I wanted to touch on all of it to some extent. Um, those of you who know the name John Piper... Uh, he's a well-known American preacher. He has 21 sermons on Romans chapter 15. So we've only got one this morning, and, and we're already moving on uh, towards midday. Uh, it's not quite midday yet, don't worry. And uh, so I'd like us to focus on a number of things, but try and touch on all aspects of the chapter. It's almost an impossible task. But one of the things, and, I, and what I have done, because I wasn't here last week, I did listen to Phil's message on the, the website. So I'm kind of up to speed with where he was last week. And he said something, a number of things which struck me, one of which was, we shouldn't need chapter 14, but we do. Because chapter 14 is all about um, handling areas of difference, which are not central to the gospel, but are nevertheless important and different people have different understandings. I mean, essentially in context, it's, it's particularly to do with the Jews and the Gentiles and, and the Jews had lived a certain way all of their history and the gospel had brought fresh perspectives on some of those things. You see that in the book of Hebrews. So inevitably, the Gentiles who were becoming Christians uh, and the Jews who were becoming Christians, they had very, very different starting points and there was a real relationship between them. So uh, I think what Phil was saying was that, you know, some of these things should flow out of our hearts and from the gospel, but we need to be instructed in it. And that's why we have got chapter 14. That's why Paul wrote that. And uh, the whole idea of showing respect for the scruples of others uh, as a matter of conscience. It's always been a key kind of fundamental evangelical position of freedom of conscience. It's a very important issue. And of course, our conscience should be guided and directed uh, by the word of God. So, uh, but people are at different levels of understanding. So that was all that kind of area. He did quote, I think it was F.F. F. Bruce he quoted, and it was a lovely statement. He said that gospel people are not in bondage to their emancipation. Now, it's absolutely brilliant because we have been set free but we're not in bondage in the sense that we are even free not to exercise our freedom. I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible uh, gospel piece of logic and respect that we can have for one another. Another thing that he said was, and, and again, this fits in with the chapter beautifully, pursue the path of peace within the life of the church. Now, I said it's a big chapter. 
33, it's not just the fact that it's long, 33 verses, but there's so much in it. And it reminded me a little bit, when I was uh, 16, it's a long story, I won't bore you with that, but when I was 16, I worked on a ship. And uh, I remember we went to Amsterdam, and, and uh, I was totally naive. Uh, not that we went into the city, we were just in the docks, and out to our ship came a number of little boats with people selling things. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they were highly dubious characters, but that's another story. Anyway, I, this chap pulled alongside in this boat, and I was interested in buying a watch. And so I said, have you got, a, have you got any watches? And he said to me, if you've got money, I've got watches. And he opened up this case with hundreds of watches. And I'm sure they were all uh, a little bit uh, suspect. But anyway, there was just an abundance of it. And, you, and then you don't know where to, and of course I'm young and I don't really know, and, um, and you're overwhelmed with the amount of it. Well, this chapter's a bit like this. It's, it's full of all kinds of things. Almost every verse you could stop and think and learn. So that's going to be a, a, a difficult thing. And then another thing is, of course, the consequences keep flowing. And what I mean by that is the consequences of the gospel. We are made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the whole explanation of the gospel, I mean, it really is chapter one through to chapter, the end of chapter five, because chapter six and seven and eight are kind of consequences uh, theologically of the gospel. But then when you get to chapter uh, 12, it's just the practical godly living that just flows out of it again and again and again, so many different issues. And so they keep flowing. It reminded me a little bit of um, Niagara Falls where the water just keeps pouring over and flowing down the river. And uh, it's quite a sight. I've had the, the pleasure of, well, was it a pleasure? It was more of a terror uh, on the little boat and going very close to the falls. And the, the consequences of being in Christ in this, they just keep pouring over, pouring over into our lives. So let, let me take it in three kind of sections, all right? Verses one to six. And I won't have time to read every single verse we're referring to. So in a sense, you'll have to do a little bit of homework on this if you want to get the most from it. But the, it seems to me that there's a question here that we can ask in the light of chapter 14 because it continues on in 15 with the consequences of the gospel in our relationship to each other and so on. And I'm going to put it to you like this. If you think you are strong, then how do you treat the weak? Now, we're not talking about physical strength here. We're not talking about uh, power in the sense of money and resources. No, the strong here, going back to chapter 14, means those who have grasped the implications of the gospel and they know that they are free from certain things. I mean, ceremonial foods, for example, and, uh, and, and certain days and, and feasts and all the things that had been kind of built in, if you think of the Jewish context, uh, at least that would help. And so the strong, and Paul included himself among the strong, are those who have realized that in Christ, some of these things have been fulfilled and passed away and, and, and we don't have to follow them. That's the strong. 
and the weak are those who are still bound in their conscience by some of these things, and so they're, they're, they're fearful. And we're not going to go back through last week's message, but that's essentially what, it, what it's about. So I'm asking the question, and, and this is what comes out of uh, chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. So what, it, what he's saying for the strong is those who have grasped the implications of the gospel. And it, don't uh, bear down on the weak. Bear with the weak. Now, it doesn't just mean tolerate them. It means more than that. It means be considerate, be thoughtful, uh, try and help them where opportunities are. Be careful in the exercise of your own freedom that you don't tread on them. That's the kind of thinking that he's doing, that he's talking about. Um, and I thought it was quite uh, smart when Phil had his, had his, as his title, Marching On Together. Um, and he talked about the church marching on together. And he linked it, of course, with the, the football and all the rest of it. But of course, in the world, and I was thinking of that illustration a little bit more, if you know, if you think, and it's quite relevant this week, if you think of the, the kind of the world of football, if you are seen as weak, you're marched out the door. You're not marching on together anymore. That's the ruthlessness of the world. You know, it's using the, the world of, of football as a picture of that. And it's very interesting, the essence of what Paul says in these opening six verses is this. Instead of taking one side or another, you know, Paul, he doesn't stand up and say, look, I'm, I, I'm with the, uh, the strong here and this is what we should do, or, or I'm with the weak here. What he actually does is he calls each side to account for any attack that they may make on the other side. If you can get that. So what Paul is saying is very, well, it all comes together in uh, verse 7, actually, in chapter 15. For I tell you, sorry, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So this kind of finishes up what you were looking at in chapter 14. The strong must be strong enough to bear the burden of the weak because they have the greater strength. Now, just broadening that out for a moment, in the New Testament generally, the whole idea of bearing one another's burdens is very prominent. And that's an important part of the life of any church that seeks to be a church who's walking with the Lord. And the proper way to please your neighbor is, is a way, as we read in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor, how? For his good, to build him up, to strengthen one another. So in this context, it, it could even mean maybe sometime the, the strong is speaking to the weak and saying, look, as a Christian, we don't need to worry about that. We've been set free from that. Could be that context, but it could be many contexts. Aiming for people's good, building them up, that's a constant theme again of the New Testament. 
And when Phil last week called for gospel logic acting for the good of the other, that's exactly right. We're seeking to please each other in the sense of helping one another. And that's a tremendous strength and a tremendous thing to draw from. But of course, typically of Paul, uh, as you would expect, he refers to the scripture. Because look at verses three to six. Uh, he, he then says, um, he, he, he cites a scripture that we read earlier, the, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. And often the New Testament writers use Old Testament scriptures that refer to the sufferings of Jesus on our behalf. We've been remembering that this morning. And then he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may have one, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture guides us in all aspects of our lives. Scripture gives us encouragement and the ability to endure. And the reason scripture does that is it's because God does that. That's what he says very clearly. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. So God himself speaks to us through the Bible. And that's why in a church like this, the Bible is central. We're not trying to establish our own philosophy or our own ideas we're trying to understand and grapple with God's word what it means for me for you for each other as a collective group in the life of the community living it out so that's I mean as you can see there's a lot you could we could dwell on there but that's that's the first area if you think you are strong how do you treat the weak. And that's a little, that's a sort of a subset of a bigger question is, if you call yourself a Christian, how do you treat other Christians? And that's massive. And that's of great importance in the Lord's sight. And then the next section would be 7 through to 13. Now again, this is, this is, this is, Amazingly big. You've got to remember, Paul has spent his life traveling and preaching the gospel. And, and he refers to that here. But my question is, and I'll put it again like a question, this is all about Jesus and the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And the question is, he's talking about a worldwide gospel, uh, and Kathy mentioned it in her prayer, how big is your gospel? Now, what, what I mean by that, how big is your grasp of the gospel and how big do you understand the gospel actually is? And this, this section of, uh, as you'd expect, he's coming to, to the conclusion of this magnificent letter and he's been dwelling on the gospel in great detail. And he's telling us how big the gospel is. 
And he's telling us exactly what the gospel is. And of course, in context, immediately, mutual acceptance is a massive consequence of the gospel. So if you look at verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, that is to his promises and his faithfulness to those promises, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he has a whole string of verses which we had read to us. The Jews are glorifying God for his faithfulness to the promises in the gospel. What did God say to Abraham? In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Every nation under heaven. It is the most radical message in the entire world. Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy. That in the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, which culminates in the coming of Jesus, the dying of Jesus, the raising of Jesus, when that all happens, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, me, uh, and if you're from a Gentile background, that's you, then we glorify God for the fulfillment of his promises in Christ. And then he, and, and basically, in verses 11 through to 12, when you serve like Jesus, you are serving the truth. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's a really important thing. And he talks about trust and peace and hope and power. Look at verse 10, verse 13. You know, it's often Paul will close a letter with a, a little prayer of blessing. A doxology is the term we often use. But in the end of Romans, there's several of them. It's almost like he keeps finishing and saying a bit more and keeps finishing and saying a bit more. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That was one of our themes at the Thanksgiving service for Robert Pattinson recently here in this very room. And we were thinking about the Christian hope which makes grief different. It makes death different. And it's Jesus that makes the difference. And we, we hear it again. This is an echo constantly in Scripture. And so the whole thing is the gospel is big and it's worldwide. Universal in the sense that it is for all. We don't believe in universalism, which is to say that everyone will be saved in the end. That's hardly what you find in Scripture but it is worldwide. And it's encouraging to me because in, in, in our church in Brighouse, it's, it's quite a, a one nationality group, really. But here in this church, there are many nations represented. And that's a wonderful thing because it, 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 it exemplifies this. The gospel, how big is it? How, how, how big is your view of it? Now, we, we move on from that, keeping that thought in mind, because Paul's now going to talk about, it's a very practical section, but I could call verses 14 to 33 characteristics of a healthy, godly ministry, because you can, you, we will identify some of those. But I want to put another question here, 
and that is, what drives your ambition? What drives your ambition in life? Now, let me just put a, put a little uh, rider in here because although we're going to be talking about Paul and his ministry, and he was a missionary, he was an evangelist, he was a pastor, he was a teacher, he was a theologian. And you may, you may be none of those things, but you're a Christian. But remember that all of the principles of service that, you know, that might apply to somebody like Paul who was a missionary apply to you and I. So as you go about your business tomorrow morning and on Tuesday morning and on Wednesday morning, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever you do. And that's a high dignity. That's a great blessing. You have a tremendous opportunity to live out this great gospel for the Lord's sake wherever you are. Now, I'm not, I'm not daft. I know that some of you, that might make, there, there might be tremendous challenges in that, just trying to be a Christian in your workplace or wherever it is you find yourself tomorrow. And you'll be challenges to that every day. I'm conscious of that. But let me just highlight, because this is almost all we can do with this great chapter, is highlight certain things. It's worth remembering that what, when it comes to Christian leadership, the New Testament is emphatic, is forceful, and that the critical factor is character. Now, of course, there's gifting, and that's relevant, obviously, but character is the big occupation or preoccupation of the New Testament writers. So, for example, let's just look at Paul here. Um, it's going to be difficult because we're running out of time, but there's, and there's a lot here. So you, you, you will really need to read. I would really recommend grab some time this afternoon or later on today or bedtime and just read this section again. But Paul's comprehension of the gospel, he had grasped that Jesus had died for him. He had grasped that his righteousness was as filthy rags and he needed the righteousness of someone else that was perfect, and Jesus provided that. He, he comprehended that, but he did more than that. He apprehended it. He got hold of it, and it got hold of him, and it energized his entire life. And so this is what we find. And he, he's viewing the people. He talks a lot about the Roman. Now, he'd never been to Rome. He got there. If you look at the ends of Acts 20, a chapter, in the last two chapters of Acts, he got there. It was a bit of an unusual way of getting there, but he got there. But he talks a lot about the people. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And verse 15, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of the reminder, because of the grace given me by God. Verse 22 you see, he keeps referring to the Romans that he's writing to. This is the reason why I've, I have so often been hindered from coming to you. That's because he's always been on the road with the gospel. 
But verse 23, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in, in passing as I go to Spain. I'll just keep reading read through there. And to be helped in my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He loves the people. He wants to, to meet with them. He's written them this great letter. It was at the very heartbeat of the empire, of course. It was a big company. and There clearly were some issues with the Jews and the Gentiles trying to work out what it means to be a Christian in the light of all those things. But he had comprehension and apprehension of the gospel. And, and so that, that taught him to love the people who followed Jesus. In other words, you know, by, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have lo love one to another. And he's expounded that love already. But he has ambition. Verse 17. And uh, you have to keep going backwards and forwards a bit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Sorry, uh, yeah, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. And by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, that's kind of, well, it used to be Yugoslavia. Now it's separate nations, isn't it? It's in the Adriatic coast there. In other words, if you, if you go from Jerusalem and you went on a map, you would, drive like, you would draw like a circle, right, half a circle right round to that. That's what he means, that he'd, he'd preach the gospel all the way around. And you think of his journeys in action. Perhaps that's not everything that we know about his travels. But then he says this, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. In other words, he has this gospel ambition. Now his task, his calling, his ministry from the Damascus Road was to go and to preach the gospel, plant churches, and break new ground where the gospel had never been heard. That was his ambition. Now, I do believe, and of course for him that was, was teaching and preaching and speaking and so on. For us, it means different things. You know, as we scatter among people tomorrow, we take the gospel with us. As we are part of a church which has resources and can help others take the gospel. We've just been hearing about the particular work of UCCF, an amazingly important work in this country. 2.5 million students. So, you know, a church can help them and they take the gospel out. It, it, and there's connections with missionary work and there's specialist work among certain groups and all the rest of it. Our ambition, we should have gospel ambition. And we can all do something. Prayer, finance, personally, all kinds of things. We're interested in the gospel. We're interested in the progress of the gospel constantly. And that's a wonderful thing. That's what, that's what shines out to me with is Paul's heartbeat for the gospel. And so he's not just, and of course, 
He's writing it and he's explaining it in the book of Romans. And even as he's explaining it, he's on fire for it. But also notice contribution. And um, verses 23 to 27. Basically, he's going back to Jerusalem to deliver a financial gift that has been collected together for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. There'd been hardships. And they'd had this massive whip round. And, and he was going to deliver it. And they'd made a contribution to... And basically, Christians in other parts of the empire had collected together the money and he was going to take it and deliver it to the, the Christians in Jerusalem who desperately needed financial support. It's very practical. But this is what it's all about. So in verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia, that's north and southern Greece, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to him. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be able to be of service to them in material blessings. See, gospel blessings issue in practical results. When therefore I have completed this and I have delivered them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So he's heading out. He, he's going to go see them. He's wanted to go for, for years. He's delivering the, 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 the loving gift of finance to the church in Jerusalem. He's then going to go to Rome. Uh, this is his plans. And then he wants to go on to Spain. Uh, and we don't have any record of that. Although I'm sure it's been explored in, in lots of ways historically. So true spirituality is practical. So if we love this gospel... It will manifest itself in, pra in practical ways. It could be a little bit of helping somebody with a bit of money. Of course it could. It could be 101 things. And it's motivated by gratitude for the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ has saved me. So that then means that in my gratitude, I will bless and seek to bless others. There's a man, just, it just comes to me now, there's a man who uh, was very much a part of this church many years ago. Those of you who have been here for over 30 years, maybe, you'll have to ask me afterwards who I was referring to. But I know about this man because he, uh, some of you might twig it, he became, he went to agricultural college and became a Christian. So he felt he should be a Christian farmer. And so he served the Lord through his agriculture uh, in all kinds of different ways. Gratitude. And so the Christians in Greece were so grateful and they felt that they should help their poorer Christian brothers at that particular time financially. Contribution. So there's comprehension and apprehension and there's ambition and there's contribution and then there's supplication, prayer. Uh, verse 28. When therefore I've completed this, etc., etc. And then he says, um, I know 
In verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to your brothers by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company May the God of peace be with you all. Now, this is a prayer request. There was a problem. Was the gift going to be acceptable? That was an issue. Also, he knew that he would be in danger setting foot in Jerusalem. And if you read Acts chapter 20 through to 28, you will see how accurate this is. It was highly dangerous for him to go into this situation. But he must go. So what does he do? He asks the Christians to pray for him. Pray that the gift will be acceptable, that, that, the, that the love that's been poured out will be received. Pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. There were a lot of zealous people that wanted to kill him, literally kill him. So he faces all that by asking for prayer. Now that's a wonderful thing. And when I was here last time, it was a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned about William Tyndale and his New Testament. And uh, I only told you half the story. That's not because I wanted to save it today, but it was because I forgot. And uh, my wife said to me afterwards, you didn't tell the rest of the story. And there's a glass case in London, in the British Library, and that, in that glass case is the little New Testament of William Tyndale. But when Tyndale died, he prayed that the Lord would open the King of England's eyes. Well, just a few years after his death, in 1539, Henry VIII ordered that a Bible in English be placed in every church. Now, it's not quite a 1539 edition, but if you go to the church in Hunmanby, the Anglican church in Hunmanby, uh, which is near Filey, Scarborough, Brid, up there, little village, Anglican church, you walk into that church and there's another glass case. And in that glass case is a 1541 edition of that Bible. And it's still there. You can see it. And that was placed there because Tyndale breathed out his prayer even as he died. So Paul valued prayer. And that's a wonderful thing. I'm conscious time's absolutely gone. But listen, finally, let me just revisit Paul's longing for the church at Rome. Let me just cite three verses and then we'll sing. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is the word of God. Then may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 13, finally, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound 
in hope. Let's sing, hear the call of the kingdom, and we'll start to sing.